Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor in and advisor to more than 30 AI-first startups and a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. If you're passionate about changing the world with AI, or maybe just looking for your next adventure, let's talk. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show. And of course, the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy recently issued its blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which ironically is anything but a Bill of Rights for AI. It's really more a collection of, we'll call them platitudes, to shape our thinking about AI regulation. And somewhat cynically, I'd say it's a desperate attempt to catch up to the rest of the world, including the European Union and even China, which have both been negotiating actual regulatory frameworks related to the ethical use of AI for, gosh, years. <laughs> The blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights includes five pillars, which are a reasonable starting point for discussion, even though they are far from being turned into anything that is actually enforceable. Those five pillars, the right to protection from unsafe or ineffective systems. Number two, the right to protection from algorithmic discrimination. Number three, the right to data privacy. Number four, the right to notice and explanation. And number five, the right to human alternatives. Like I said, a good starting point, but uh, not sure that blueprint goes quite far enough. We'll link to the full Bill of Rights blueprint in the show notes. I encourage you to read more. We'll be discussing this important topic more in upcoming episodes and even perhaps with today's guest. Shifting to this week's conversation, Jonathan Frankel is the chief scientist at Mosaic ML focused on reducing the cost of training neural nets. He's also an incoming computer science professor at Harvard, having received his PhD at MIT and both his BSc and MSc from Princeton. Jonathan has been instrumental in shaping technology policy related to AI. He worked on a landmark facial recognition report while working as a staff technologist at the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. Thanks to recent great guest Hina from Samsung Next for the introduction to Jonathan. I've been looking forward to this one. Jonathan, it's uh, my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by maybe having you share a little bit more about your background and uh, how'd you get into this space? Definitely. I'll actually share one really important thing that I think will lead to fodder for great conversation in a moment. In my other life, when I'm not doing the Harvard thing and doing the Mosaic thing, I also do work on technology policy, specifically with the OECD and putting together their AI policy framework. So I'm not quite so cynical about the blueprint as you are, um, as you just described it. And I look forward to having that conversation in a moment because I think this is where policy begins. And it typically begins with a set of principles. You have to state your principles before you can write them down as laws. And, you know, there's something to the U.S. regulatory attitude there as well compared to the EU or China in that respect. And so I will disagree with your very cynical take on that. And I look forward to hashing that one out. But in the meantime, I get into this space um, a couple of ways. 
I am a computer scientist and I wasn't always a machine learning person. In fact, I didn't really start becoming a machine learning PhD student until the second or third year of my PhD. I was working on a number of different topics earlier than that, like, you know, security, privacy, technology, policy, and law, which is how I get into this other mess that we'll discuss. Um, but I read enough papers on deep learning and it kind of caught my eye because, well, everything seemed so made up. Um, and by made up, I mean that you could read a lot of deep learning papers from around 2017 or so you'd see these very sophisticated, science sounding explanations. You'd see things like, you know, this works because of, you know, internal covariate shift, or that works because, dropout works because it's really allowing you to train an ensemble of networks, and here's a proof to show it. But there was no real evidence or science backing any of it up. We were just, you know, saying things, and that was good enough to get it published. I was a little irritated and fed up with that. I thought maybe we could be a little more scientific, empirical, and rigorous with this. And um, that's how I got in. I started working on some research called the lottery ticket hypothesis, which ended up being my dissertation work. We can talk more about that in a moment if that's interesting to you and your audience. And, you know, haven't really stopped since then. And the way that I describe my style of work is really that we should look at deep neural networks the way that we look at biology. And I like to make the metaphor of biology versus physics. So one way we can try to understand biology is to study physics. You know, we are all made out of atoms and, you know, physics does apply to the biology we have here on Earth. But if you try to extrapolate from physics and predict what might happen, you'd have a lot of different possible outcomes that might occur. One very specific one being the biology here on Earth, but that's you know probably an infinitesimally improbable outcome compared to everything else. You wouldn't predict that as opposed to anything else. The other approach is you can say, well, I'm going to be a biologist and take this very complex system with emergent properties and understand it as it is um, and try to study it and understand its behavior. And, you know, it's not going to be perfect. There's no law of biology in the same way, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. But we understand the patterns and motifs and behaviors and properties. And in doing so, we can generalize and develop things like pharmaceuticals that interfere in those pathways. In computer science, we tend to love theory and proofs. We build all of our knowledge on that. And so, you know, I liken that to physics. We like our ironclad laws of physics. But deep neural networks, the ones that work in practice anyway, are these big the result of big complex systems with emergent properties that in very specific circumstances do cool things. If we study all neural networks, we're never going to study the ones we care about. I liken the kind of work I do to, you know, being a biologist rather than a physicist in that respect. I study the artifacts as they are, try to understand them, get to know them, learn their biology as it were, and develop, you know, the analogously pharmaceuticals that will allow us to change their behavior in positive ways, allow us to make them more efficient, for example. Jonathan, that was a cool tease. I love reading more about your research on the lottery ticket hypothesis. Go ahead and summarize it for our, our audience. Definitely. So the lottery ticket hypothesis, catchy name, very simple thing that's happening. When you take a standard neural network, like one of the big ones you see in practice, GPT-3 or BERT or you know something on ImageNet, all the ones you've probably heard about, stable diffusion, any of those, once you've trained the network, there's this really cool thing that happens. You can actually delete, you know, probably somewhere between 50% and 90% of the connections. These neural networks are just made up of connections between what we call neurons or units in the network. You can delete about 90% or up to 90% of those connections, and it won't actually affect the performance of the network in any way if you do it right. And you, you know, you clean up the mess that you made. And I found this endlessly fascinating because what that says is whatever we learned didn't actually need the full capacity of the network in order to, you know, in order to represent that knowledge. You can delete 90% of the capacity, 90% of the things that allow it to learn things or allow it to represent things and still, you know, still remember pretty much what you learned. And I found that endlessly fascinating because it made me wonder, 
well, then why did you need this big network in the first place? Couldn't you have learned with something smaller? Couldn't you have deleted those 90% of connections at the beginning? And prior to my research, the belief was no. Something weird was happening. To learn a really interesting behavior, you actually needed much more capacity than to represent what you had learned. The way I think about it is like understanding calculus for the first time is probably much harder than having a synthesized knowledge of the rules and behaviors and probably requires a lot more brain power. That's kind of analogously what people believed were happening in neural networks. And in the lottery ticket hypothesis work, I showed this isn't actually true. You can actually get these smaller networks to train from the start or from nearly the start to completion and still learn the same things. You didn't actually need that brain power. The brain power that you need to learn is the same brain power you need to actually know something. And that's really interesting because learning seems more complicated. There's a lot of devil in the details of how you get this to work. And, you know, it's more interesting science than it is practical for a number of reasons having to do with the how you arrange the connections you delete from the network. But at the end of the day, it was this very weird, strange finding that maybe the way that we're training neural networks isn't as efficient as it could be in that case, because we've got, you know, 10 times as many connections as we needed from the beginning. And in our work at Mosaic ML, we're now looking at this question from a number of different perspectives. How can you go through and figure out how to change the recipe or the way that we train neural networks to exploit, you know, exploit efficiencies that are already there in some sense, to make sure that we're not doing any wasteful work and we're only doing the work we have to do to learn something. So it's a huge field. And I like to think my research was part of helping to kick off that push to develop more efficient ways to train neural networks algorithmically. So two follow-up questions. One, uh, how in the world do you figure out what the 50 to 90% of unnecessary connections are? And then two, um, what are the benefits? If the outcomes are the same, are the benefits primarily economic, cheaper, faster? So there are a couple of devils in the details here. How do you find that 50 or 90% of weights? Well, you actually have to train the whole neural network to completion first, see what gets deleted at the end, and then go back in time and say, if only I had known those would get deleted at the end, I could have deleted them at the beginning. So my research has shown the existence of smaller networks that could have learned, but it doesn't show how to find them efficiently. In fact, to find them, you actually have to train the whole network first. It's even less efficient to use my method than it is to actually train the network, but it still tells us there's something there. There's an opportunity to reduce the cost of training. And, you know, this might not be the right opportunity to exploit, but that opportunity is there. And there are all sorts of other opportunities to exploit as well. And now I'm trying to make this a little more practical. It was interesting science, but, you know, I won't claim that we're doing this at Mosaic ML. On the economic side, the goal is really drive down the cost. Um, and cost comes from a number of places. The most important one is just, you know, how much compute we can shove through our GPUs or whatever processors we're using at a given time. It turns out the lottery ticket research actually wasn't that useful, even for that perspective, because it produces a bunch of, you know, the underlying matrices. And we represent all the weights in our network as these big, you know, two, three, or four dimensional matrices. Um, it produces matrices that are what's called sparse, that have kind of values missing or holes in them. It turns out that it's really hard to actually accelerate computation where you have holes in your matrices, even if you're doing fewer operations theoretically. We do these operations in big blocks anyway, so having a few holes in there doesn't actually help to speed things up. And so actually making that particular line of research practical is also very challenging. But, you know, at Mosaic, we're exploring a bunch of other ways of doing this with the goal of being practical. I kind of think of our work as Lottery Ticket 2.0. If only I had known back in 2017 what I knew now, um, how would I have gone about doing that work? And how would I have gone about accomplishing those goals? I've learned a lot of lessons in the meantime. So industry is different from academia in so many ways. You mentioned one, there's presumably a profit motive at Mosaic ML. What has been the most surprising thing to you about transitioning out of academia into industry? 
Um, oh, there have been so many things that are surprising. I think speaking scientifically and really my title is chief scientist. So, you know, the scientific part is, is my main focus. The problems are harder and the constraints are stricter. In industry, I have to reduce the time or money it takes to train a neural network. In academia, I could get away with things like, well, hypothetically, if we had a different kind of computer, there would be fewer operations to do. Or hypothetically, I've reduced the number of steps needed to train the network, even if I've made each step five times as expensive. There's a lot of wishy-washiness you can get away with in academia um, in order to push science forward. That wishy-washiness also allows for new ideas to creep in and allows us to take bigger risks. Um, in industry, there's no wishy-washiness. Um, either it's cheaper or it's not, and claiming that it might hypothetically someday be cheaper is not remotely good enough. Those constraints are stricter, but they bring a sense of clarity that I absolutely love. It really forces you to think about, well, you know, what, what will really accomplish these very strict goals? It also forces some creativity. I've had a ton of new science ideas that, you know, we're either working on a mo at Mosaic or I look forward to taking back with me to Harvard um, to work on inspired by these stronger constraints. And I think it's a common thing in science for people to say that, you know, constraints breed ideas or what have you. I'm sure there's some nice catchphrase that, you know, some famous philosopher has said on this, but, you know, I've definitely found that constraints have led to creativity in really interesting ways and have led to new ideas that I are now kind of bouncing back into academia now that I'm going back and talking to people in academia about this. Um, but also it's been nice not to have to publish. I'll say, I'll say that and leave it at that because for anyone who's ever tried to publish, it should be obvious to you that it's nice not to have to do that and to still get to do cool science anyway. So over the last decade or so, we've experienced whether you call it an AI summer or whatever you know term, term you want to use, but this resurgence in interest and enthusiasm around AI and AI research. Um, as a researcher and someone who's been uh, certainly instrumental in some of this resurgence, what would you say is the key or the top one or two research breakthroughs? You know, we talk a lot in the community about like backpropagation, some of the work that came from there, but you tell us what, what has impressed you the most about the research from the academic community? I don't think there have been any research breakthroughs that have enabled this quote unquote AI summer. And I hate the summer winter thing. People are really stuck on this and believe that like, oh, because there's a summer and because we have the summer winter framework, there will be another winter. Um, this technology has proven itself to be practical at this point. You know, it's not about winters. It's more about, you know, how the pace of progress will change and where it will have impact over time. Um, it's not like, you know, AI is just going to go away and disappear anymore. It's out there. It's in the world. And it's a fundamental substrate of computation at this point. But I don't think there was a big breakthrough that got us there. People look at certain moments as being important, like, you know, the BERT paper came out or the Transformer paper or, you know, the AlexNet moment where someone showed a neural network had really come to the fore. But I really look at this as a combination of, you know, two or three things. One is that, you know, we had a lot of data and really, you know, you can look at the cloud as having unlocked this data or just, you know, all sorts of other data collection that's happened. But finally, we had the kinds of large scale data sets that allowed us to actually you know, train these networks and neural networks, it turns out are very data hungry. The next is that we had the compute necessary to train these giant neural networks in the first place. And what we're finding is that bigger is better in some sense. Um, it's not like, you know, it's not like, honestly, the neural networks we train today are very complicated. In fact, they've gotten much simpler in the past few years. And I think they're only going to continue to get simpler. Um, we've just made them bigger. And I don't think bigger is going to be the long-term future of deep learning, but it is one way to get to these exciting capabilities. I like to hope there will also be more efficient ways and more, I guess, widely available ways to do this. Um, that's part of what we're working on at Mosaic ML. But you know, in the meantime, we got the compute to make them bigger. It was really a combination of compute allowing us to make these things bigger and having access to a lot of data that was necessary to power them. The rest is really just, you know, 
in the grand scheme of things, tweaks. We've developed some better initialization schemes, but you know, we've had all the initialization schemes we're using today are actually throwbacks to the early 2000s. We've kind of discarded the initialization schemes we developed that powered things like AlexNet um, or ResNet in exchange for you know these old self-supervised approaches where we would prime the neural net by pre-training it on lots of unlabeled data. Now we're doing that all over again. So you know, in some sense, that hasn't been the key. Um, people look at the transformer architecture as being important, but in some sense, you know, even fully connected networks are pretty powerful and all the recommender systems that are used in practice are really just fully connected networks. Transformers have been helpful, but I don't think they've been, you know, that wasn't an inflection point or something that completely changed the trajectory of the past 10 years. So I really think data and compute and the rest was just this happened to be the right paradigm to take advantage of that. These things can absorb a lot of data in an effective way and making them bigger and giving them more data allows them to be productive. So, you know, I think it's, I, I don't think it's as complicated as people like to make it out to be. Generative AI has really captured the imagination. I think of the public about ways to commercialize AI. It certainly captured the imagination or at least investment dollars in and around Silicon Valley. One of the discussions that I think generative AI has stimulated for good in the AI community is what are the useful limits of deep learning? And is, you know, is deep learning, you know, sledgehammer to pound a nail in some cases, as an expert in the space, what would you say are the AI problems that are good or well-suited for deep learning? And then what are other AI-related problems where it's not a good fit? So the way I typically imagine this in my mind is that deep learning works best in cases where the data is pretty complicated. Like the data is not something we could describe easily as humans. It's lots of text or images or audio things that just have a lot of features and it's hard to like develop heuristics or easy you know, decision rules or things like that. And things that have relatively high signal to noise ratios, like images have tons of signal in them relative to the noise. And in fact, there's a lot of redundancy in language in in images, in audio, there's tons of redundancy that we can use to do things like, you know, speech to text or, you know, doing some kind of machine translation there. There's lots of information there. And we don't know how to express those patterns. But neural nets, the whole reason why we like neural nets are they learn their own features. That's why they were invented. You can think of, you can look at ICLR, the International Conference on Learning Representations, which was kind of, you know, one of the early deep learning conferences. Um, learning representations being the key part here. Neural nets do learn their own representations. And in cases where it's hard for us to write down, you know, how to do eye detection or something in a facial image or something like that, neural nets seem to learn those sorts of things relatively adeptly. So those are the settings that I look at. It's hard to predict, though, kind of what's coming next. If I knew, I'd already have done it in some sense. Um, but there are lots of tasks out there, but also our kind of our beliefs on this are evolving over time. I remember when I took natural language processing classes at MIT back in 2017, I remember the professor saying, well, deep learning has had a ton of impact on, you know, computer vision, but really it hasn't had that much impact on natural language processing. And we seem to be, you know, still relying on the old methods. It hasn't quite made the same difference. And it, you know, maybe it just works better in vision because there's more content there. Obviously, um, that prediction has not held true. And suddenly it's been neural networks time to shine for natural language processing. Maybe we're in a world where we're coming back toward computer vision. Now people have come to me lately and said, well, you know, we've had some, you know, we've had some success with BERT and with GPT, but we haven't really had anything quite like that in images lately. People are still using the same old object detection and segmentation. Um, maybe this will come back around again. So it's really hard to predict. And I don't like to try to, I, I don't like to try to predict this stuff. You know, the generative applications are working a lot better than people thought and a lot better than, you know, even when DALI came out or GPT-3 came out, I think people's impressions of how much these models are doing has grown over time. People looked at DALI as being, you know, just 
you know, is memorizing and regurgitating images. But I think we've moved beyond that assumption about what's going on in the model. So, you know, hard to say what will come next, but certainly, you know, right now it's generative models time to shine. But then again, we've had GANs for years and years and years. And so, you know, we'll, we'll have to see where things go next, I think. You disagreed earlier with my cynical assessment of the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. A question for you, what is the appropriate role for regulation of AI? And equally, or perhaps more important, what's the path for us to get there, assuming we, uh, you hopefully agree with me that we're not there yet? So I'll talk about both very briefly. I think when it comes to AI, my my opinions have generally been that AI has two different kinds of impacts on systems we have, you know, in the real world. One is, you know, when you, I love this dichotomy of difference in degree versus difference in kind. In many cases, AI is just a difference in degree. I look at like, let's take credit scoring, for example. We've had some kind of rule-based, you know, the FICO credit score is probably not a very sophisticated machine learning system. It's probably machine learning. It's probably they looked at a bunch of data and tried to come up with some, you know, very basic decision tree or something like that. I don't know what the actual internals are, but there does seem to be, you know, it's a it's a machine learning system. We've had means-tested benef- public benefits programs. We've had automated ways of making decisions for decades, probably going on centuries, if you really look back at a lot of government decision-making, AI may be adding more sophistication there. But in many ways, regulation should be to say, we're going to hold these AI systems to the same standards as we've held every other system. There are already standards in, say, the Fair Credit Reporting Act for how you should hold an AI system accountable in the credit space. So, you know, there we already have some ideas along these lines in certain places. Then we have the differences in kind. We have things like, you know, autonomous vehicles, where you know, in some sense, making the vehicle do a short little road test, which might make sense for giving a human driver a driver's license, is not remotely sufficient for an AV because these systems have different, you know, different behaviors, different failure modes, all sorts of other things like that. And simply holding them to the standards we felt humans to is not remotely sufficient. And those are places where we do need new regulation. I'm a much bigger fan of the US kind of piecemeal approach to regulation than I am to the EU or China style kind of GDPR style approach. These things tend to be very big, very bulky, and a lot of the real work gets done at the administrative level, which can, you know, lead to just huge amounts of unpredictability and, you know, kind of one, sits, one size fits all approach. And I do think these applications deserve to be taken into account in the context, in the regulatory context in which they already exist. In some cases, we do need strong new regulations, say, around, you know, autonomous vehicles. Maybe that will simply come in the form of rulemaking. Maybe there will actually need to be laws that are passed. In some cases, in credit, we may already have the regulatory system in place. And all we need to do is just hold AI to account on that in the same way that we hold anything else to account on that. So, you know, with respect to the blueprint and the policy process, the way I think about this is, you know, it's informed by my experience at the OECD, which was that we spent over a year on this really painful principles making process where we came to, you know, a whole set of AI principles and what AI should and shouldn't do. It was high level, fluffy, touchy feely, pick whatever words you want, not implementable, but that's not the point. The point is that when you do policy, you have to start with what your values are and what you care about. And the U.S., although further behind than everybody else, this blueprint is a statement of principles and a statement of expectations. The rest comes down to, you know, how we move forward with how we approach this. And it could be asking every regulatory agency that's already out there to consider these principles and consider AI impacts to the areas they're regulating. And it could be that we try to pass laws in certain areas, or even we pass something broad-based, or even at the state level, we pass something that, you know, tries to codify these principles into practice. But the important part here is you do have to start with principles, otherwise you have no idea what you're legislating and why. And so regardless of how you're making law, 
you know, principles are where it begins. It's something that I really didn't appreciate years ago when I was working with the OECD. And I've come to really appreciate that now, now that they're working their way down to apply those principles into more detailed policy documents, which will eventually hopefully be the basis for a lot of national laws in the member country. It feels to me like a um, typical case of kind of political grandstanding. We're saying the right things. They're obviously, they're, they're convenient platitudes. But my concern is we're fiddling while Rome burns. There's real lives are being impacted. We share a lot of this, their stories on this podcast today because AI-based decisions often aren't transparent. A lot of times the, the neural nets make, making the decisions aren't explainable. And my concern is at the pace of federal government, we may uh, be doing too little too late. Is it the case that the federal government is really the right place for AI to be regulated? I mean, you could regulate it on a state by state basis and end up in a place where you have, you know, 50 different laws in 50 different states. We're getting there on privacy right now due, due to the lack of federal action. And it's going to be a mess. You know, California has their own law. Colorado now has their own law. Many other states are going to be passing their own privacy laws. And they're not necessarily compatible with each other. And they're not, you know, in many cases, you know, if someone can't detect exactly what state you're in, basically the strongest privacy rules will apply. In, you know, in the case of privacy, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. We'll see how the rules end up shaking out because all these states have passed laws but have not actually created the rules yet. And, you know, on the flip side, you know, for AI regulation, I'm not sure whether we want the strongest state to have say over what's happening with respect to AI. And I'm not sure we want 50 different sets of rules for, for autonomous vehicles in 50 different sets of states, for example. Um, but if you're going to act in a broader way, you have to start with what your principles are. And it's taken us a really long time to get those written down, probably later than we should have. But the U.S. government does tend to take a more reactive pose in terms of new technological innovation. And, you know, I think there's there's a good reason and a good set of track record and a good track record for that. People look back at the example of the web where we did take a relatively hands off laissez faire approach and, you know, things were able to flourish. We never actually followed up and regulated, though. That was kind of the biggest issue. We never passed that privacy law that we should have passed once the web had grown into what it was and we had a better sense for what was happening. In AI, I think it's an open question right now whether this is too early or too late. Um, now seems as good a time as any. We just have to be willing to revisit often and that's easier said than done for the federal government or for any state government for that matter. But you can't really pass a law until you know what you're trying to do and the statement of principles is really the first place where that gets negotiated. Policy, in my mind, is all about taking your principles and finding ways to actually accomplish them through the mechanisms available to you legally. And what would be the alternative that we pull an AI bill out of thin air that implicitly encompasses these principles and then try to work our way backwards and say, well, we put that in because we cared about it. That's how you end up with a bill that you know doesn't really have a focus or a purpose. And you know, it's very easy for people to carve up and put in whatever, you know, whatever little carve-outs they want for their industry or their their particular line of work. I've grown to be a big fan of at least stating what you believe in before you try to put it down on paper in the form of a law. Because really that's, you know, it's about stating the kind of system you want to build versus the actual details of the implementation. But you need to know what you're building first. So as the chief scientist of an AI first company, what will be the most effective way to ensure that what Mosaic ML develops and commercializes is done in a way where you uh, are exercising what we'll casually call responsible AI. So there are a few things here. I think part of it is that, you know, we are in some sense a gatekeeper to these technologies. Part of our work is democratizing. We're driving down cost and in doing so, we're allowing anybody to go and use these technologies. But to a certain extent, you're always going to need a large amount of resources to use the biggest stuff out there. You know, it's going to be pretty hard for an average person 
um, you know, somewhere in the middle of nowhere to say, hey, I want to train GPT-3. Let me go um, drum up a couple million dollars or what have you and train GPT-3. We think it's cheaper than that and we'll push that cost down. It's still a big sum of money and that's a barrier to entry. It's not the same kind of barrier to entry you have, for example, in developing nuclear weapons where, you know, you do need a huge, massive science program. This is the kind of thing that one person in a room can do given enough money and enough time. But at Mosaic, I think a lot of the things we're thinking about right now are we are gatekeepers to some extent. Um, you know, we don't let anybody onto our platform and we do get to, you know, choose our customers. And I'm sure, you know, as we have more customers, there will be vigorous debate about what our principles are there. And we're going to write them down. Again, principles do matter. Writing down what we believe in and what we care about and what we think are, you know, reasonable or responsible uses of our technology is a key thing that we do. I imagine in a world where we are a successful business and, you know, we're still a little startup, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. If we only have five customers, um, we don't need to have a statement of principles and an advisory board yet. But if we have 50 or 100 or 1,000 customers, we do. And that's where having friends from civil society can be really helpful to us, inviting those folks in to give us advice on whether it is a good idea to work with someone or not, and why, and, you know, who to share this technology with. I don't think we should be deciding that ourselves. I think, you know, I would honestly trust the kinds of people who I used to work with. You know, those are the kinds of people who, who I would want to tell me what we should and shouldn't do. So related to that question, hopefully Mosaic ML succeeds in democratizing access to these super powerful deep learning technologies. Do you feel as a scientist, that you're responsible for how they ultimately end up being used? Of course. Um, you know, I'm not responsible insofar as, you know, each individual actor can choose to use it how they want. But of course, I played a part in enabling that access in the same way that if I published an online, you know, book saying, here's how to build, you know, a nuclear reactor in 10 easy steps. And, you know, I drove down the cost of doing that. I am responsible for the consequences of that action. And there's no getting around that. We, we as scientists are certainly responsible. We're not solely responsible just because someone then chose to use that guide to build a nuclear weapon is a whole other can of worms. But if I have made it really easy and given them all but, you know, the button to push and just told them how to wire things together, I have played a pretty significant part. I've done a large part of the work in enabling this to happen. So we're certainly walking a fine line at Mosaic in this balance between, you know, democratizing and trying to make sure that, you know, this technology isn't just available to Google, Facebook and Amazon but also making sure that we don't put nuclear weapons in everyone's hands. I don't think this technology that we're working with right now is remotely comparable to nuclear weapons, but it's the metaphor I hear people use from time to time. You know, some of my friends who are in this space will say, you know, aren't you just giving weapons of mass destruction to everybody? Um, aren't you ending the world? I think that's an exaggeration of what this technology is capable of. Um, go play with GPT-3 for a little bit and tell me whether it's really a weapon of mass destruction, but it is powerful and with sufficiently creative uses, it can be very dangerous. So we do bear some responsibility for it. I wouldn't say full responsibility, but certainly some. And as a community, if we're not recognizing that, we just have our heads in the sand. So just operationally within your team at Mosaic ML, what are some of the things that you do to educate your, your team about the potential? Hopefully, you know, what you're working on never becomes a weapon of mass destruction. But like you said, it can be, could be dangerous. What do you do internally to uh, in, in inform the team about potential harmful effects? So I think the most important part is we talk about it. This is an open subject. I think we're lucky that we have several folks at the company, myself, our um, CTO, Hanlin Tang, who have spent time in the policy world and who have interacted a lot with government. We're, we're pretty thoughtful folks and pretty experienced folks when it comes to those policy considerations. And it's about creating an environment where people on the team are welcome to ask us questions and have a discussion. Um, at the end of the day, it's not a democracy and we don't vote on who we work with or anything like that. But it's important that the folks at the company trust me and trust Hanlon and trust our leadership to make thoughtful decisions. 
And that starts with having good conversations, helping to educate folks, just, you know, talking about things, bringing in speakers even, um, which I think we're going to start doing soon. It's really, it's been on my to-do list, but there are a lot of things on my to-do list, but bringing in speakers who we respect, who have been in this position. You know, I, I know many folks who have started companies or worked at companies where they've been in the midst of having to make those decisions and bring in the people who have actually been there in the trenches. I don't want a philosopher. I don't want someone who talks about big principles. I want someone who can talk about concrete stories where they've had to make real choices. Cause I think that's the most informative part. The principles, you know, we should have them written down, but you know, we can't philosophize too much at the end of the day, we're making real decisions, but nobody on our team is really at the point where they're making a decision. Yes or no, we should work with this customer. Yes or no, we should build this thing. You know, it's not really, saying, oh, we should make BERT more efficient doesn't necessarily cross us from not super weapon to super weapon or making GPT-3 more efficient. There's not kind of one thing that one person's working on on the team or kind of anything any individual is working on that really, you know, will be the deciding factor and, you know, whether this becomes dangerous or not. It's really the higher level decisions we make about a company as to what we work on and how we share it that go there. And so really it's about the team trusting leadership to make good decisions. And that starts with having open conversations. I hope every company like Mosaic ML is uh, having similar conversations. It's really critical. So fast forward 10 years and based on the pace at which the these technologies are advancing, it's hard to even in your mind's eye think about where, where we go from here. But I think we both agree that it's probably beyond the kind of parlor tricks you can do with GPT-3. You know, I can feed it a text prompt and have it output picture of a cat astronaut style of Monet or something. Presumably, we're going to get beyond that. Uh, give me one thing that you think might be commonplace in 10 years if you logically extend what the technology can do today. What's something that will be commonplace? I don't play this game, um, quite frankly, to be completely direct with you. You've just said, you know, if the pace continues today, I don't think the pace, that's not how this works. We've had a really, really busy 10 years of progress in the field. Lots of fields have these busy 10 years of progress. But, you know, if space travel had continued at the pace it was going, say, in the 1960s, if space technology had continued, we'd all be living in, on Mars right now. We'd have nuclear fusion right now. We'd have flying cars right now. Technology doesn't work that way. You don't have, you know, a burst of 10 years and then things continue at an exponential pace forever, or things even continue improving linearly year by year, you know, forever. So the idea that we're going to see the pace of technology continue for another 10 years in this field, and we're going to go from parlor tricks to something more than that. That's a lot of assumptions. And I'm not going to say that's not going to happen, but I think it's a huge assumption and perhaps a, you know, more likely than not something that's not going to happen that we see this pace continue. That's just not how it typically works in science. And I don't think it's going to happen here either. Even if the pace of tech, the pace of improvement slows down, we have a lot of juice to squeeze out of all the innovations we've had, a lot of new applications to find, a lot of new ways to mix and match the technologies we have. You know, I think that's going to be the big excitement of the next many years. And I don't think that, you know, people who are talking about AGI are just, you know, stupid, quite frankly, that just seems like a silly thing to discuss. But even people who think that, oh, we've gotten from, you know, I don't know, we went from LSTMs to GPT-3 in five years. So in five more years, we'll, I don't know, you know, AI will be, you know, ruling over us or something, or we'll have, you know, truly intelligent systems. That's just a nonsensical way to reason about this stuff. I've heard the phrase a lot from people I trust in the field saying things like, we're building a ladder to the moon if we're trying to get to AGI through neural networks. This is really cool pattern recognition technology, and it's gone a lot further than really anybody would have thought it would have a few years ago. But that doesn't mean that, you know, continuing to iterate on it's going to push us, you know, much further than this. 
things tend to peter out. And, you know, we've had a lot of people working on this for quite a while. I don't know if we're going to see the same pace of progress. And I would be shocked if we did, because, you know, that would be highly unusual for science. Jonathan, I've asked that question probably 50 times over the years and uh, never been challenged on it. And that was a really good defense of why uh, why there may be more nuance to it. I, I got to get you off the hot seat. It feels like we're uh, we're just getting started. Wish we had more time, but uh, but you're not leaving without answering me one last one last question. Uh, you've been on the ground floor of some technologies that I think it's non-controversial to say will dictate the future of humanity. Certainly impact a, a lot of people in a lot of different ways. In ways like you said, we we, we don't even know today. Uh, we'll, it's going to be in your epitaph. What's your enduring contribution to uh, to technology or the field that you're in? So I do want to take issue with this. I think the words were, you know, what was it? Determine the future of humanity or what was the exact phrase you used? Was that it? Something bold, similarly like like that. Yeah. Could, could dictate, um, dictate that, the future of humanity. Oh, dictate the future of humanity. Oh, that is just over the top exaggeration. This technology will be important, but so is computation. Dictate the future of humanity. Like if you had said computers are going to dictate the future of humanity, that's exaggeration too. I mean, computers are going to be important. They're an important tool and technology that will allow us to do new things. But, you know, that one technology is going to dictate the future of humanity unless it's, you know, nuclear weapons and it wipes us out. You know, I think that's a little over the top. But on the epitaph, I hope that, you know, I will have made a useful contribution to science. Um, That's really, I think, at the end of the day, the best anyone can really ask for here. Anything more is hubris. We're all just trying to make some scientific progress, and I hope we do so thoughtfully, and I hope we do so carefully, and with an eye toward how it can make people's lives better. But at the end of the day, I'm a scientist, and I like doing science, and I'm glad that the science I'm doing is hopefully useful to some people. So refreshing, Jonathan. Thanks for challenging my uh, my BS. I appreciate it. I hear so much BS. Um, I think it's there's something very unique about the state of California for putting BS into people's heads when it comes to technology for you know, a long rant that I won't give you right now. But, you know, there's a reason I stay on the East Coast and only visit California. And I think there's a little bit of a monoculture and um, they're, you know, a bit of an echo chamber out there right now. Um, And people get a little ahead of themselves in terms of how they think about where things are going. Sometimes people do good things, even if they're doing them, you know, essentially for the wrong motivations. I look at my dear friends at OpenAI as one example. AGI is... If AGI is what gets them up in the morning and causes them to do useful, incremental, productive things, awesome. But if they're hoping to create AGI, I think someone once said, you know, OpenAI won't need to ever make money because they'll invent AGI and then we'll have no such thing as money. You know, if that BS is what gets you to make meaningful contributions to science, great. I'd prefer to keep my feet on the ground and I wish more people would. We are legendary at uh, navel gazing. Uh, Yes, you are. Good. Well, Jonathan, uh, it's been great. Really, really enjoyed this conversation. Where can the audience learn more about you and your work? Um, they can go to my website at jfrankel.com um, and they can find out how to contact me and chat about this stuff. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I like to speak through my work, not through my voice. You can read my papers, you can read what we're doing at Mosaic ML, and I like to hope the work talks a lot louder and a lot more clearly than I possibly could. Well, if I could make one request of you, would you come back another time and maybe unpack more of our Silicon Valley BS with me? Oh, I could do that for hours. You just let me know when. <laughs> Good. You have an open invitation. Jonathan, this has been a pleasure. Uh, we're all out of time for today, but we're back next week with another uh, another fascinating guest. And uh, as always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin of AI and the Future of Work. <laughs>